part of the uh, sweet ministry of being a pastor is the privilege of baptizing people. And uh, I've done a number of baptisms in my years, and some of them are quite memorable. I remember one time baptizing a young guy who, who grabbed onto the sides of the baptistry on the way down, and he wouldn't go under. And of course, being a good Baptist, I had to push a little harder to make sure that he was immersed. I thank God that I had the privilege of baptizing two of my children. One of the sweetest memories was here in Winchester Baptist Church. I had the privilege of baptizing a confessing Presbyterian who, though she differed with us on the mode of baptism, she humbly laid aside her preference for the privilege of being a member of our church. And I thank God that I had the privilege of, of baptizing Mindy Fuller. And then there was Bob. Bob was a man in his 60s who attended Hamilton Baptist Church with his wife. He grew up Roman Catholic, um, considered himself a good person, just trying his to do his best. And then he came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understood that he was not good. Instead, he saw himself as a sinner before a holy God. And he understood that that holy God, because of his love and his grace, made a way for sinners to be redeemed through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Bob confessed his sinfulness before God. Bob stopped trying to earn God's favor by his good works and by his morality. And instead, he trusted Jesus Christ as the only and all-sufficient Savior who will forgive sin and make sinners righteous before God and give them eternal life. I thank God that on his profession of faith, I had the privilege of baptizing my friend Bob. One of the sweet privileges of being a pastor is getting to baptize people. So that's why it was really surprising to me, maybe it was to you, when last week in our text, we heard Paul say these very words, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. The Apostle Paul said that, I thank God that I baptized none of you, speaking to the church at Corinth. Why didn't Paul baptize those who became disciples of Jesus under his ministry? Did Paul not value baptism? 
Was Paul afraid of water? And so he had others do it for him? Did Paul normally baptize people who became Christians under his ministry, but that he had just not baptized very many of the Corinthians in the 18 months that he had been there, and now that they're fighting about it, he's really glad that he didn't. Well, Paul actually answers the question in our sermon text today. And his answer points us to the beauty of baptism. Now, before we go any farther in this sermon, I want to quickly admit that Paul did not write this portion of the letter to teach about baptism. Yes, it does teach us something about baptism, but that was not his intent. He's not like sitting down and and giving uh, an excursus on baptism here. But we are going to do that. I, I told you at the beginning of this series on 1 Corinthians that because he deals with so many issues that sometimes I'm just going to push pause and talk about some of those issues. And so this morning we're going to be talking about baptism. And there's at least three reasons why. Number one, uh, it's been a while since we've had the privilege of baptizing anyone in our church, and we're going to be doing that in two weeks. So I want to make sure that we understand what the Bible teaches about baptism. All right. Secondly, I want to make sure to encourage any of you who have never been baptized to do so. And then third, I want to remind everyone in this room, everyone who listens to this sermon later, who, like me, was baptized a long time ago. I want to remind us of the beauty of baptism. In fact, I dare say that when you were baptized, you were probably like me. I didn't understand the depths and the riches of the beauty of baptism like I do now. And sometimes I'd kind of like go back and just do it all over again because I understand it so much better. But we don't do that. So I want to remind us of the beauty of baptism to stir your heart to praise the Lord. All right, our sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And um, the specific verses that we're going to look at this morning are verse 14 through 17. So please take your copy of God's Word, look at 1 Corinthians 1. And I'm going to begin in verse 11 to give the context. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's God's word. Amen. So the big question that we're asking in this text, in this sermon today, is why didn't Paul baptize you? See that? In verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except two guys, Crispus and Gaius. So a quick review from last week. We, we dealt with this whole section last week, and uh, we learned that Corinth had a major problem. In verse 11 and 12 there, do you see that? The church is split. It was being torn apart in a sinful power struggle between four groups within the church. These four groups were claiming uh, to be more spiritual than each other because of their allegiance to one of the esteemed spiritual leaders of the day, like Paul or Apollos or Peter, Cephas. And so Paul appeals to the church to be united to be knit together in love for one another and in unity. And one of the ways that he does this is in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He appeals to them to be united by exposing the absurdity of claiming loyalties to any human leader. So he asks three questions in verse 13. Look at it. Is Christ divided? The answer is obviously no, that's impossible. Christ is one person and he can't be cut up and divvied out. You can't have your Christ and I can't have my Christ. He's the one Christ. The second question, was Paul crucified for you? Answer, of course not. Paul is a sinner in need of a savior just like you. Third question, were you baptized in the name of Paul? which Paul answers for them with a resounding, no, you were not baptized in the name of Paul. And then he gives his reason why. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And Paul's reason, verse 15. So that... No one may say that you were baptized in my name. Paul says, I avoid doing the baptizing myself so that no one will be tempted to say that they were baptized in my name. Paul was in a rather unique situation. As an apostle, he had tremendous authority in the church. He was appointed by Christ as the apostle to the Gentiles, which Gentiles are anyone who is not a Jew and of Israel. So Paul is the apostle, the representative of Jesus to the nations of the earth at that time. And he himself and his team was often the first person to preach the gospel of Jesus 
in a new place. That's how it was at Corinth. In fact, Paul says so in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So Paul is on the forefront of missions. He's the first there to preach the gospel. And he knew that there would be a temptation that new converts to this new thing called Christianity would be viewing themselves as disciples of Paul rather than disciples of Jesus, which is already happening in Corinth. So just like Paul says in verse 17, look at verse 17. I don't preach with clever rhetoric and performance because I want to make sure that the message of the cross is correctly understood. In verse 15, Paul says, I don't baptize because I want to make sure the, the message of baptism is correctly understood. I don't want anyone thinking that they're a disciple of Paul. I want to make sure that the message that baptism communicates is clear. That leads us to our second question and the rest of the sermon for today. Question number two, what is the message of baptism? If Paul wants the message to be clear, if he values baptism so much that he wants to make sure that its message is clear, then what is the message that is communicated through baptism? Well, the answer in a nutshell is this. Through baptism, we declare that we are identified and united with Jesus Christ. Through baptism, we declare that we are identified, number one, and united, number two, with Jesus Christ. See, baptism is not just a ritual. Baptism is like a dramatic presentation. So, kids, we've all seen plays, right? And when you see a play, you see people acting out a story. And baptism is like acting out the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like a dramatization. We make a statement. The gospel is visualized through baptism. And so we have the Christian standing and then being immersed in water, brought up out of water, and then walking out of the water. Baptism is like a dramatic presentation. It's also like a sign that points. It's, it's not just a sign, it's a, 
sign of the covenant. It's, it's a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. Now, this sign doesn't bring you into this reality. It just represents that you have been brought into this reality. So probably one of the best and most biblical examples of this is um, the covenant of marriage and our wedding rings. This wedding ring is a sign of a covenant, isn't it? This wedding ring says, I'm married to Sherry, formerly Jackson, now White. And this sign, if I were to give it to Noah, doesn't mean that Noah is now married to my wife. Keep your hands off of my wedding ring. That's right. It doesn't bring him into the covenant. It didn't bring me into the covenant. But it was a sign, a symbol of that covenant. So the ring only has significance when it points to the reality of the covenant that we made in marriage. Same thing with baptism. Baptism has significance because it points to the greater spiritual reality of our covenant with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gave two signs of the covenant to the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We call them ordinances. They don't save us. By being baptized, we're not saved. By taking the Lord's Supper, we're not saved. But they represent, they point to the spiritual realities that they represent. And so baptism is the oath sign. It's, it's the, the sign that the Christian is initiated into this covenant. And then the Lord's Supper is the renewal sign. It's the, it's the renewal of our vows, the, the constant reminder and remembrance of the covenant that has been made by Christ with us. The message baptism dramatizes and the covenant baptism points to is this that we are identified and united with Christ. Not Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. So there's two messages. Identification and union with Jesus Christ. Let's look at those more closely. The, The first message of baptism is this. Baptism declares that we are identified with Christ. Identified with Christ. What does it mean to be identified with Christ? Well, to be identified with someone is to be connected with them, to pledge your allegiance to them. And Jesus says in, for example, Matthew chapter 28, that he has all authority. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then listen to what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what's the very first thing he says that we're supposed to do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says that the very first step in making disciples is 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That identifies this convert with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the convert pledging allegiance to or confessing the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the early church used to have that as a baptismal confession. Jesus is Lord. I wonder if you've ever said that. Baptism declares that we're identified with Christ. And what we find out as we journey through the book of Acts especially is that baptism follows faith as the first step in the Christian life. Let me say that again. Baptism follows faith as the first step in the Christian life. One more word. Always. For example, if you'd like, you can just follow me through Acts. Let's do a little survey real quick. The Apostle Peter stood up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and he preached Christ. Large crowd, he said that Jesus is the Christ and that they had crucified him. And when they had heard this, the Bible says in Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and what? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter said that baptism is a part of the response of faith to the gospel of Christ. They were cut to the heart. What should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So look down at verse 41. What happens? So... Those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism followed their faith. They received his word. They repented and they were baptized. Look over at Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Philip preached the gospel in Samaria. Acts eight twelve. Look what it says. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When were they baptized? When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about Jesus Christ. Philip continues his ministry. Look down at the end of chapter 8, verse 35. You remember the the famous scene where he encounters a, a eunuch on a chariot from Ethiopia and the eunuch was was reading the scriptures, trying to understand. And Philip opened his mouth in verse 35. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip's obvious answer was nothing. Because look, verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
the eunuch, believed that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53. And so he was baptized. Baptism is the first step that follows faith in the Christian life. Look at chapter 8, verse, pardon me, chapter 9, verse 18. Jesus confronts Saul, who becomes Paul. Same guy, different name. Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus to torture the church. Jesus sends him to Ananias, who explains the gospel more fully to him. Through the power of God, heals his blinded eyes. And in chapter 9, verse 18, look what it says. Then he, Saul, rose and was baptized. Baptism follows faith as the first step of the Christian life. Acts 10, verse 48. Are you following? Acts 10, 48. Peter preached to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And following the evidence of their regeneration by the filling of the Holy Spirit, look what it says. 1048, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Not to get the filling of the Holy Spirit, not to become disciples of Jesus, but following that, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the first step in the Christian life. It follows faith. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. Here Paul is in Philippi, new frontier. He's sharing the gospel with a a merchant woman named Lydia. Look what it says in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. Oh, isn't that beautiful? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well. So she was baptized after the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why? Because baptism follows faith as the first step in the Christian life. She was baptized confessing that Jesus is Lord. Acts chapter 16, I only have two more just in this brief survey in our journey through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 30. This is Paul and Silas. They're in jail. An angel comes, releases them from jail miraculously. And so the jailer, seeing this tremendous display of power, hearing them singing, seeing their life, he says to them, Acts 16.30, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Beautiful. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. The jailer was baptized following faith as a first step in the Christian life. Acts 18, verse 8, last one. Acts 18, 8. Paul ministered in Corinth. 
And it says this about the Corinthian believers. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Many of the Corinthians heard Paul, number one, believed, number two, and then what was the first step of the Christian life following their hearing and believing? They were baptized. Baptism is the first step that follows faith in the Christian life, friend. Simple question. Have you taken that first step? And, and notice something about this. It's not just the first step. It was a public statement of faith. Now, we don't know how public. We don't, we don't know if they gathered everyone around. But certainly we see this in the context of households together. We see this in public squares throughout the book of Acts. Baptism is a public statement of faith by two parties. Number one, by the Christian. And number two, by the one doing the baptizing. Baptism is a two-sided affair. It's a statement by the Christian. In every case throughout the book of Acts, we see that the Christian is professing faith in Christ. But we're also seeing public affirmation of their profession by the one who is the authorized representative of Jesus. So all through the book of Acts, we see the apostles and the authorized representatives like Philip, who was in Acts 6, made a deacon. In Acts 8, was out ministering because in Acts 21, he's called the evangelist. He was sent out by the church in Jerusalem as an authorized representative to carry the gospel to people. What we don't see are normal, everyday members of the church baptizing each other in their swimming pools like we used to do at my house. Me and my friends used to baptize each other all the time in the swimming pool. We really did. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I was a church kid, man. But what we see in the Bible is that it's always done by the authorized representatives of Jesus. And so Jesus had his disciples who became the apostles. They were the authorized representatives of Jesus and his gospel. They planted churches, ordained elders, and those churches became the authorized representatives of Jesus on earth. Baptism is given to the church of Jesus Christ as an ordinance to make a public statement in affirmation of this person's profession of faith. So just on this first point, let me recap. Baptism follows faith as the first step of the Christian life in which both the Christian and the church makes a public statement declaring that this person is what? Identified with Jesus Christ. Bobby Jameson at Capitol Hill says it this way, Baptism is where faith goes public. It's where invisible faith first becomes visible. 
It's how faith shows itself before God, before the church, and before the world. Baptism is where faith goes public. Have you made your faith in Jesus Christ public by being baptized in his name? Baptism has a second message. It's not just identification with Christ through this public statement, but the second message is that through baptism, we declare that we are united with Christ. United with Christ. Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Romans chapter 6. I want to spend a few minutes understanding what it means to be united with Christ. Rob already read this text for us today. I'm just going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 for the remainder of our sermon. But baptism is beautiful not just because it identifies us with Christ, but that it goes deeper. It unites us. Union is where two things are no longer two things, but they become one thing. Union. Inseparably linked. Made one with. The best example of union is marriage. A man and a woman. Formerly me and me permanently become we. One together. Which means what? One shared life. It means one shared home, one shared family, one shared bed, one shared checking account. From now on, they they probably file jointly with the IRS, and the IRS no longer views them separately, but like the good biblical, no, like the, the thing that they are, they view this couple as now what? One, joint, united, no longer me, but we, until death, do we part. That's the gospel, friends. Jesus made a covenant with us, a blood covenant with his church, until death do we part. And the resurrection of Jesus means that he will never die, therefore we will never part. That's why God says, Jesus says in Matthew 19, that what God puts together, let no man separate. Baptism is like that wedding ring that tells everyone we're in union with Christ. We're one with Christ now. What's ours is His. What's His is now ours. And that's really good news on both sides of that equation. Romans 6 shows five powerful pictures of our union with Christ that are dramatized in baptism. Especially, I might add, as a good Baptist, in immersion rather than sprinkling or pouring. But baptism 
regardless, biblically dramatizes these five powerful pictures, and I will go through these quickly, but they're beautiful. Romans 6, 3-5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." You see at the beginning of Romans 6, verse 3, he talks about baptism. And then in verse 5, he says this baptism communicates union. We're united with Christ. Five powerful pictures. First of all, picture number one, baptism declares that we're united with Christ's death. Do you see that? Verse 3, baptized into his death. Verse 5, to be united with him in a death like his. What does that mean? What does it mean that baptism demonstrates that we are united with Christ in his death? Baptism portrays the gospel truth that we're united with Christ in his death, which means our old sinful person has been put to death and we are no longer slaves to sin. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was so that He would put sin and its curse to death forever. He, the righteous, was a sacrifice for the guilty. And baptism portrays in the death of the one standing in the water that our old sinful person has been put to death. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at verse 10. For the death He died, He died to sin Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, the death of Christ means this. Sin has been crucified to us. And we have been crucified to sin. Picture number two. Baptism declares that we're united with Christ's burial. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So what is the picture of burial? Baptism portrays the gospel truth that our old sinful self is buried in the tomb with Christ. Just like Pilgrim. When, when we see the crucified Christ on Mount Calvary, 
the heavy burden of our sin falls from our back and rolls into the empty tomb of Christ. Burial with Christ? Our old man, your old sinful self is dead and laid in the tomb beside Christ's. Picture number three. Baptism declares that we are united with Christ's resurrection. This dramatic portrayal says we've died with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and now we are raised with Christ. And I got to admit, all of it's beautiful, but that's my favorite part. It is just my favorite part when the Christian is brought up out of the water, portraying that he or she has, has been raised with Christ. So just like the death and burial of Christ is the death and burial of our old sinful self, Baptism portrays the gospel truth that a new righteous person has been brought to life instead. We're no longer what we once were. The old man, the Adam in us is dead. And now what? The Christ has been raised to life in us. We're new, righteous people because we're united with Christ. Not because of ourselves. Look at verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Raised new. Raised forever. Eternal life now in Christ. Picture number four. Not only the death and the burial and resurrection, and sometimes we stop there. But look at verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. The, the picture of baptism is, does not just stop with the new life, but it encourages the walking in new life. So baptism declares that we're united with Christ's life. When the Christian walks out of the water, baptism portrays the gospel truth that this new person is going to live a new life, united with Christ and empowered by his spirit, not ever on his own. I'm with you always, not under your own power, because we've tapped into the vine and the life and power of Christ that flows through us. So baptism shows that we're united now with the life of Christ. And then last, and though often overlooked, this is not least, picture number five. Baptism declares that we are united with Christ's church. 
Did you ever think about that? Well, I know I'm united with his death, burial, resurrection, maybe the walking in newness of life thing, but his church? Yeah. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. So just as the gospel of Jesus creates new people who have new lives, we're made part of a new community. The body of Christ, his church, baptism, unites us with Christ's church. Paul even speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about the oneness and the unity of the church in the ones. You remember this in Ephesians 4? There's one body, one spirit, just as you're called into one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's baptism that unites the church and brings us into this new community. So let me just summarize that which we just said. Baptism declares that we're identified and united with Christ, which means our old sinful self has been put to death with Christ and buried in his tomb. And a new righteous person has been brought to life who will live a new life as part of a new community. Now that's beautiful. So the question, how about you? Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? If not, we're having a baptism on November 6th. Let's talk. Let's talk. I'd love for you to take that first step. It's a beautiful But Christians, maybe like you, you understand the gospel a lot better, a lot deeper, a lot more richly now than you ever have before. And when you were baptized, you probably didn't know all that. I didn't. So let's just rejoice together today that all of it is still true. And it's not because of our faithfulness but it's because the faithfulness and grace of the one in whom we are united, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for what you have done through Christ and through your grace to unite us sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've done this by your grace and by working faith in each one of us. We thank you that that uh, you have this beautiful picture of baptism. And whether it was a long time ago or still waiting, I pray that you would remind us not just of our baptism, but of the beauty and the wealth of what that baptism represents. I thank you so much for the gospel that frees us from sin and unites us to new life in Christ. We praise you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.